0: Almost one year has passed since the sixth EUAU Summit took place in Brussels, a year in which we witnessed multiple crises and geopolitical shifts. So what has become of the commitments that African and European leaders made at the summit? And how have last year's geopolitics and crisis impacted the relationship? This is what we will talk about today. I am Katerina. I'm a communications officer here at eCDPM, and I'll be facilitating this discussion. Which will mainly take place between our two in house experts, Lidet and Filomena. Let me just introduce you to them. Lidet is the Associate Director of ECDPM's Peaceful Societies and Accountable Governance Cluster. She specializes in African peace and security issues, the AU and its partnerships with the EU, but also China, Africa's role in multilateralism, and the geopolitics of the Horn of Africa. Welcome, Lidet. Thanks, Katharina. And our second expert is Filomena, head of ECDPM's AU EU relations team. So she specializes in the relations between these two continents but also AU reforms, trade and regional integration or even international law and justice. Welcome Filomena. Thank you so much Catherine and good morning to everyone. For our listeners, I should let you know that this conversation much like all others like all other Twitter spaces, is being recorded. We would also encourage you to ask our experts some questions or if you have a comment, uh, you can request the mic. This is at the bottom of your screen. And you should also know that this conversation is part of a wider effort on ECDPM's part to look at this partnership one year after the summit. So between February and April, we are preparing a series of public and closed-door events, opinion pieces and analysis that will look at how the au EU partnership has evolved in the past year and propose ways to improve relations between the two continents. So keep an eye on our website, but also our social media and our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with our analysis. So let me get this conversation started by turning to you, Lydette. It's been a year since the last summit. Promises and commitments were made, but since then much has changed in world politics. The war in Ukraine is obviously the first thing that comes to mind. What is your take on how this and other changes have influenced the partnership between the two continents since then? What have been some of the main shifts and and changes that you've noticed?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think the war in Ukraine has uh, changed quite a lot, both in in Europe but also globally, and it has in turn affected the partnership. I think it has affected it in terms of um, the salience of topics changing. Um, for example, energy and food security they had been on the table uh, before as well, but now they are sort of hot topics of the partnership. Um, So there has been, because of the war in Ukraine, there has been um, a certain spin to how these topics are discussed, uh, what kind of issues are um, raised, and then um, also the format in these uh, topics are discussed. Um, I think the discussion, especially on energy and how to overcome the energy crisis in Europe, has led to some bilateral agreements um, and explorative arrangements between some European countries and some African countries, uh, potentially exploring the possibility of exporting energy from and energy-rich African countries, but of course, you know, this comes uh, with its own challenges and controversy, uh, particularly around how to satisfy the domestic demand of um, African countries and African populations as well, as um, in various countries across the continent, uh, access to energy is a, is a critical question um, that still has not been met, uh, widely speaking. Um, and in addition to the energy and food uh, crisis and the questions around that, I think the war in Ukraine has also shown us that the the two continents don't really see eye to eye on the multilateral system, although both of them sort of agree that the multilateral system is the best way to uh, manage global governance. Um, however, what it means to govern it um, and what it means to support each other and to be partners and allies in this multilateral system, particularly uh, now in, the, in this time where, um, you know, we are in a highly polarized and um, geopolitical context remains unanswered. So I think the war has really shown us that there is something to unpack about the multilateral system and what it means to have an EU-Africa partnership on uh, based on multilateralism. Um, but, you know, like uh, when I talk about multilateralism, I'm also referring to, um, as an example, I'm referring to some of the votes that were had at the UN uh, General Assembly around the war in Ukraine. Um, but I would also pose a question to Philomena, who... Um, is also an expert on multilateralism, um, and you know, Philo. Most of us think about the UN when we think about multilateralism or a multilateral fora. But the EU and the EU are also finding some opportunities, but also challenges on other matters um, at other fora, such as the, the uh, World Trade Organization, for example, on vaccines or intellectual property rights or global finance in general. Right. Um, so, what are what are your what are your thoughts on what is happening in other fora beyond the UN? Thanks so much, Lidette. Maybe let me first start by saying what you already said about the, the, the question posed by
2: Katarina. For me, I would say I have seen a shift or more of an awakening in the AU and its member states on building self-autonomy and resilience. We have seen this in discussions around health security. And of course, last year, we saw food security, as you mentioned, being a main area of focus. And this year, we have the AFCMT implementation. So the effects of the war in Ukraine have made it more imperative for the continent to act and reduce its over-reliance on external food and fertilizer supplies, all the multipolar and geopolitical competition. We have seen the AU diversify its partnership and act to increase its agency, including the recent bid to join the G20, which of course is being seen as a good move to strengthen not only global economic governance, but also to have a more increased African ownership in the policies of G20. But to your question about multilateralism, if we recall at the summit last year, the partners not only made a commitment to promote effective multilateralism with the rules-based international order, with the UN at the center, But they're also committed to cooperation in other fora, for example, on WTO reforms. And we also have ongoing discussions at the WHO for a global pandemic treaty. So on your point about cooperation, I know last year there was um, a lot of um, discussion around vaccines and intellectual property, which was a main area of contention in the February Summit last year. And we saw the issue move to the WTO, where, of course, we saw in June a decision being taken. Uh, on the intellectual property waiver for COVID-19, allowing members' greater scope to take direction to diversify production. However, when it came to extending this waiver to cover production and supply of COVID-19 diagnostics and therapeutics, we did see some concern by some developed countries, including concerns raised by the EU Parliament. Uh, of course, in December, the deadline even passed. And uh, we now see, I'm sure a lot of you also listeners have been following the developments o- ongoing right now in Equatorial Guinea, with the Moberg virus, which is you know, it's an outbreak right now. And I just checked the Africa CDC and also WHO websites on this. And I was just, uh, one, one sentence caught my attention where it said there are no vaccines or anti- antiviral treatments approved to treat the Murbug virus at the moment. So for me, this goes back again to the need for more um, cooperation in the multilateral fora. Let's be able to, um, cooperate to be to, to, to make sure that this outbreak is first of all curtailed under WHO our guidelines, but also that the intellectual property necessary to locally manufacture the, the vaccines and other interoperative uh, treatments is facilitated to the WTO. So this, as you see, there's an inter- interconnection. You know, the partnership doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has other, uh, it feeds also into the multilateral system. Back to you, Lidette.
1: Yeah, thank you, Philo. And um, on those discussions, do you feel like... Um, Maybe because of what has happened in the past two years, uh, um, also including the COVID pandemic um, and so many discussions and deliberations have taken place since then. Um, Do you feel like those discussions have allowed the partners to sort of understand each other's position uh, better? But I mean, not just to understand, but also to perhaps um, choose a path that that works for both of them in a way, allows um, each partner to support the other or are they really... Um, very far apart in their agendas and interests and, and wants on these um, issues such as intellectual property rights and uh, making vaccines accessible to everyone? I think necessity, uh, first of all, forced the hand of the EU, I would say, in the sense that its member states, you know, a reaction
2: had to be had because at, at, at the time when you know, at the summit was held last year, there was a lot of conversation around vaccine inequity, around lack of access of, of uh, a lot of developing countries, uh, including African countries, uh, to the vaccines. So it had to be had. And I feel that that shifted sort of um, the discussions, at least relating to health, as a theme in the partnership, because then we saw more frank discussions, you know, more more um, sort of say positioning of, of the African Union member states vis-à-vis the, the EU partner, where there were clear demands about what they wanted to to to, to, to be done in terms of uh, moving forward with the IP regulations. Of course, the the trips. Uh, agreement has to be complied with, so these issues had to then move back into the multilateral forum. But even there, we, we did see the African group at the WTO really pushing for, you know, a, a position. We saw some 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 other um, countries which are considered to be in the Global South, you know, India as well, together with South Africa, you know, really pushing for this. So I would say, in a sense, uh, we saw more boldness in some thematic areas, but, of course. Not everything is always aligned. We still see divergences even in, in, in topics that were, have been on the books for a long time, like migration. We still see divergences on um, new areas that you may think have, 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 have a common understanding, but different ways of limitation, like on the just energy transition, even issues around our digital awareness cooperation. We still to, to to understand the interests of, of African countries, really, what the EU are in terms of sovereignty, of data and all this. So to an extent, we've seen convergences, we've seen boldness, but we still have divergences. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think what what you said about um, these uh, controversies or challenges forcing the partners to have honest and hard conversations resonates with my observations as well. Uh, Because if there is, you know, like a, a silver, a silver lining, so to say, um, of the multiple crises uh, this partnership has faced, it's indeed to force both parties to um, force themselves basically to have the the tough discussions, the ones where um, agendas may not be matching, but to also identify some of the opportunities where agendas and interests might be might be matching. But I think the. Um, urgency with which, you know, they needed to face the issues, um, I think, has become even more apparent than, now than maybe two three years um, before. Now, turning back to you, Philo, um, um, you know, changes have also happened um, in the African continent, so not just in, in Europe, um, particularly uh, with the rollout of the ACFTA, uh, the African free trade area. The EU has been championing uh, this project for some time now, and it's it's uh, rolled out, uh, in what ways do you think uh, this will affect the EU-Africa partnership? Because from the EU side, this is a big uh, project. This is a big <laughs> flagship project, as the EU calls it, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, thanks for the
2: question. Um, the promises, of, of course, of the AFC, are many, including, of course, boosting industrialization, value chain development, which, have, you know, if you speak to a lot of EU member states, you'll hear these two key words, along deepening economic integration and trade, investment job creation, and overall trade prosperity in Africa. And I think the AFCFCA, by virtue of it, covering so many areas, not just not only goods, but services, investment, competition, IP rights, digital trade, I foresee multiple areas of engagement in the partnership. And given the AFCFCA's central role in African economic development, the EU should prepare and implement its trade-related support in a way that is supportive of not only national, but also regional and continental dynamics of economic integration. But just to, to keep it short in the interest of time, this is something about one area which I see receiving attention, which is on greening trade. And this is where I see both opportunities and challenges for the EU partnership. For example, the EU supports the ACFTA could be tailored towards, let's say, green value chain development, green technology and green investment, which could bring about, as uh, they call it, green transformation. However, we also have to be cognizant of the debates around green versus fossil fuel energy especially when it comes to countries that rely on fossil fuels for the industrialization for production and how this fits into the EU's own green deal agenda. But not to keep it all doom and gloom, we do have uh, within the partnership um, last year, during the um, commission to commission meeting in November, we saw an announcement of a high level dialogue and economic on, on economic integration within the partnership, which is to be launched this year. And uh, in some of our past analysis of our EU-AU in relation to trade, we, we we have highlighted that the focus should of course be on implementation of the AfCFTA, but also related African integration processes and improving trade between the between the EU and African countries. Back to you, that.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Philo. Um, now, the other flagship project that that comes to mind, of course, is the EU's uh, Global Gateway Initiative, uh, which was, you know, announced as a as a big initiative in the last EU Africa Summit. Uh, where are we on the topic since then? What has what has the Global um, Gateway Initiative meant for the partnership or for Africa since it was announced last year?
2: Thanks for the question, Lidette. Um well, I mean, firstly, let me just remind sort of listeners what the Global initi- Global Gateway Initiative sort of focuses on. I mean, that the areas include renewable energy, digital infrastructure, climate resilience, and health. And last year, I remember a lot of talk after the February summit was around where this money would come from. In particular, uh, the, the one hundred fifty billion euros that was of Africa. Uh, and in, in last year's November Commission to Commission meeting, again, you know, this was an issue that was raised: at Global Gateway, where we? And, and partners took stock of some of the developments since the February summit. And I remember what, what stood out for me was the key announcements of big money. You know, We had, uh, for example, 750 million allocated to support infrastructure investments, for example, in transport. I, I remember it was mentioned of, of corridors as well, digitalization and energy connectivity. I mean, these are all relevant because as we see that we already mentioned, the AFCFTA really aims to boost uh, industrialization. These really fit well into that. Uh, There was also also some other um, amounts which were um, related to food, pharmaceutical manufacturing, to name a few. And in December, I remember seeing an article where it said that the EU had sort of given a green light 40 investment projects in sub-Saharan Africa, if I remember Latin America and Asia Pacific. I think it's mostly waiting to see the materialization of the the projects. And um, maybe at this point, I could possibly ask Mariella, our, our colleague who's also listening, who has more knowledge in the Global Gateway, to sort of share with the audience her perspectives on this. Catherine, uh, is it possible to, yeah. Hi, I uh, good morning, everyone. Um,
3: well, uh, first of all, um, I wanted to have a bit of a, of a broader comment. And um, you know, we are um, in a moment of big, big changes also on the EU side. I think we are, um, th- we have been discussing now uh, for a while among colleagues, for example, um, whether things will go to some sort of normal when uh, and we hope soon the war in Ukraine will stop and somehow our um, assessment is that this is not going to be the case. Um, The focus of the EU is shifting uh, and the member states in a way, of course, Africa remains still very, very important also for um, geography and history and many other elements, but the eastern neighbourhood and Ukraine. are becoming more important and are also attracting more think uh, uh, they are also likely to bring innovations you know the way um, Ukraine will be uh the the, the support to Ukraine and at some point the reconstruction will be financed may bring innovations also uh, for other countries so, so it's I suppose there's a whole an interesting uh space to watch although of course it's very um critical and problematic on on many levels and uh uh, a very gloom situation at the moment. So um, I suppose the point is Global Gateway is a global initiative and it's very important and it's one of the flagships in which uh, the EU has invested a lot of um, political energy um, but the uh, well, attention shifts has shifted uh, around very quickly. Um, Philo, you're right in the sense that um, here in Europe as well, not only outside of Europe, uh, we are all waiting to, to see a bit how Global Gateway will develop in practice. Um, I think it's, you know, the US pitched it as a, an initiative that somehow um, wants to compete with the um, with the Belt and Road Initiative of China. Of course, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative of China has been around for, um, I suppose, around a decade or more now. So it's uh, and it's invested. Um, many more resources and we are talking about one trillion dollars versus the the three uh hundred billions that the the EU has put on the table so it's uh you know also in terms of scale there is no comparison however the global gateway brings with it and i think from a european perspective and from european citizens perspective this is an added value the intention to not only deliver um you know, Results in practical terms, in terms of infrastructures, but also bringing, if you like, a value-driven agenda. For example, around environments, but also gender, um, uh, human rights, and other aspects. So, to me, um, I know this is uh, critical and dramatic in some uh, respect for um, for the relationship because we have, um, if you like, a legacy of uh, in which you know somehow. Uh, partner countries from Europe want to set their own agendas and uh, some of these issues are problematic. But I feel from a European perspective, this is actually an added value. Um, I'll stop here. We can go into other aspects uh, of the conversation.
1: Thank you, Mariella, for supplementing that. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mariella. I think from um, what both of you were saying, things around... Um, innovation and perhaps creating something new for uh, some of these challenges but also Mariella where you ended about uh, the values agenda and part of it uh, being or the global gateway initiative being able to perhaps um, uh, promote some of these values or uphold them elsewhere uh, come to mind because as you rightly mentioned the values agenda is one of uh, the, the challenging aspects of the relationship or where um, sometimes the, the African partners and the EU partners are not necessarily on the same page on how to realize those values. Um, and I feel like in this discussion thus far, we have uh, touched on um, some of the challenges of the partnership. But maybe we can talk a bit more about the opportunities. Um, and here I turn to you, uh, Philomena, to ask, um, are there some uh, Developments or progress or wins, let's say, of the partnership that you think are not appreciated enough or are not discussed enough, and that perhaps um, provide um, a way or an opportunity to develop this this partnership uh, better beyond the challenges. What are some of the opportunities really, or what has been achieved uh, really thus far that I think needs to be appreciated, that you think needs to be appreciated even more?
2: Thanks for that. I mean, if we call the themes of last year's EU summit, we had seven round tables on various topics, but then we sort of saw the media attention, you know, really circumventing over the more contentious topics, for example, around migration, health, vaccine access, inequity, which received a lot of attention last year. Um, But then there are also um, other aspects, for example, with health, which I see as one of the wings in the partnership, even the level at which the partnership has developed vis-a-vis some older themes, you see really a, a political willingness to move beyond uh let's say health securitization which is which was what we had at the beginning of the pandemic towards more opportunities for example health system strengthening and workforce capacitation both of which have been highlighted not only in the AU's, uh, sorry the Af- africa's new public health order but also in the recent eu global health strategy so we do see that there are pockets for opportunities to to work you know genuinely and comprehensively towards uh, health security on the, on the globe. Uh, but also your question on some other important developments which maybe receive as much media attention. I mean, we can speak about education, culture, vocational training, and maybe add to this what Marella already mentioned, research and innovation as well as private sector support. Uh, on private sector, for example, we do know that on the sidelines of the au eu summit, there is a, a, an EU-Africa business forum that is organized. And this is really an avenue for cooperation by businesses in both continents. And I think more can be done to better integrate their engagement following commitments at the summit. Uh, on education, I recently uh, read that in January, the EU has uh, launched a regional teachers initiative in, in Africa for Africa, which is valued, I think it's about uh, 100 million investment under the EU global gateway. So it's really, if this materializes, it will also be something that you know we can see as forwarding education on, on, on the continent, but also really empowering the, the the teachers who during COVID, we saw a lot of students um, had to stop studying because of, you know, access to online services or just um, reading mater- material, sorry. Um, so when it comes to research and innovation, as I already mentioned, uh, we have seen initiatives being taken from the bottom up, you know, by universities, researchers who are partnering, and maybe this doesn't get a lot, a lot of attention, you know, within the partnership framework. And I know that this year there is a, our uh, AUEU Research and Innovation Ministerial happening. So I hope that uh, we can s- shine the spotlight on some of the, the opportunities and some of the progress that has been made in terms of uh, fostering this cooperation between the continents. Thanks. Just before we let
0: lead that, um, uh, take back the, the mic, let me just uh, remind our listeners, that if you have, if you want to come in with a question or a comment, please do request the mic and, and, and we can do so. Um, but now, let, let
1: me then get back to uh, to That yeah, thank you, uh, Katharina. Um, <clears throat> now, Philo, uh, we have talked about the EU-Africa partnership, but uh, the African Union, of course, is busy uh, organizing its its summits this weekend, um, and the EU, of course, you know, has its own agenda on you know what it would be uh, discussing about this weekend. However, um, are there some dynamics? that uh, are taking place in brussels that you think african heads of states should consider in their deliberations because mariella made a good point earlier about how um, the war in ukraine has perhaps uh, changed how the eu thinks about its foreign policy how the eu also thinks about its role um, in the world and where it needs to pay its attention to um, and things like that so i was just wondering if you had some um, thoughts about what you think the african heads of states uh, need to consider in their deliberations this weekend um, yes, for me, uh,
2: although the, the, the theme of the AU Summit is, is mostly focused on the AFCA, of course, there are more there are important topics that the AU has continuously pushed for, peace, security, governance, and all this. And um, some dynamics in Brussels that I think the heads of state should really deliberate on and really see the implications for, the, 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 for just the partnership, but also for the AU's own agenda uh, is, for example, maybe I bring up the recent council conclusions in particular, how they relate to Ukraine and to migration. So, my reading of the, of the council conclusions was that, um, as well for me, as we near the one mark, one year mark of the Russia-Ukraine invasion, the EU, the, the EU has approved a seventh tranche of about five hundred million euros for military support to Ukraine under the European peace Facility. And I know that, that you have in the past also raised some concerns around the EPF in relation to the AUE eu partnership. Maybe you can shed some light, um, some more light on that for the audience. And of course, African heads of state should include this in the deliberations and more especially what the effects of the continued war in Ukraine for the continent. And then the second point that I, I maybe would like to mention is on migration, which has been an area of divergence in the partnership and the EU is planning to use its generali- generalized schemes of preferences, GSP in short, which gives developing countries preferential access to EU markets to promote returns and readmissions. So our migration team, I know, is at the moment looking into this issue. But just for the audience, in summary, what um, the issue of concern is, 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 is um, African heads of state should consider what this means, especially for African countries, as countries refusing refusing to readmit citizens who are denied the right to stay in the EU, will be suspended from the GSP. And we have a number of countries on the continents who are under this scheme. So for me, these two were, were some things that I wanted to maybe share with the audience. Maybe some people in the audience are more familiar and want to react back. I, I welcome that, uh, but also like to maybe ask Mariella um, if she has some more perspectives from uh, Brussels on this. Thanks.
3: Um, you know, actually, um, if I if I can, um, I was um, I was thinking about uh, the you know how how these. Conversations happen. No? And we hear from many perspectives that there are, uh, from many quarters, so sorry, that there are um, you know, misunderstandings and sometimes uh, choreographies of summits, um, uh, but not necessarily um, productive conversations. Um, I also hear that, for example, the U.S. Um, in a way, rightly, um, criticized for not being consultative uh, enough of its members. Um, and we were uh, having um, a little bit of a conversation about and thinking about this and uh, thinking, you know, uh, linking also to the point of what you were making around research innovation before bottom-up uh, collaboration. What's the role of ADAR? actors for example civil society broadly understood in pushing some of the more positive developments forward you know the areas you mentioned before and health has been a specific case because of the pandemic so somehow um, that is taking life a life of bit so uh, but if I see research and innovation education these are all areas where not only the governments and the you know, public administrations are involved but it's fundamental to bring in the role of the citizens. He, in a way, similarly, the AFCTA um, requires the buy in of the constituencies in Africa. Um, on the other side, uh, Europe is criticized for not being very consultative internally. It is a body which has, by design, to consult many, many actors, and this leads to sometimes very cumbersome negotiations that go, you know. Up to the last moment of when you really have to sign the agreements. So I was wondering, also, what's the, you know, what, what's your take on this? How do you feel that, um, in a way, the format of the conversations or the involvement of other actors in these sort of uh, discussions or setting expectations right, you know, from consultations to communication in some cases, could actually uh, bring more um, more progress in other areas. Um, uh, I the other point and I'm why somehow I'm making this, is that you know African countries have their own constituencies and Europe has its own constituencies as well. Um, and somehow you know we live in the world of external action and foreign policy and development international cooperation, but much of these dynamics are actually driven from the inside of the countries or the continents, um, which we are talking about uh, today. Um, it's you know an open question. We know, I would really like to hear your voice, but I also see some civil society organizations and other uh, participants in the talks or uh, in the
1: in the space. I would, know, I would love to hear from them um, as well. Katarina, has anyone requested the mic? Uh,
0: no, no one, no one has uh, has done so. So I think we can uh, we can slowly start to wrap this up. I don't know if that Filomena uh, had mentioned that perhaps you would like to come in with some points on the on the EPF yeah. um, before before we wrap it up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, um, because the conversation with uh, EPF and here at ECDPM, we have done uh, quite a lot of research on it. Um, of course, the the main question has to do with the fact that the EPF. And the funds that were allocated uh, therein Primarily with the objective of availing funds for peace support operations in Africa, um, but you know the EPF is a, a global instrument, meaning it could be applied beyond Africa. Has now a lot of the the money and in that instrument has now been used to support uh, Ukrainian resistance and Ukrainian forces, and this has uh, raised some questions and concerns uh, vis-à-vis the EU and African states. On um, you know since the EU the EU has depleted much of the funding there that was planned for the next seven years. Uh, what would this mean for the continuous support, financial support to African peace support operations? Because the uh, European Union was a um, primary and outstanding uh, financial backer of African peace support operations mandated by the African Union. However, um, the bigger comment that um and the, the bigger question that I think African heads of state should be entertaining uh, links to what uh, Philomena was saying earlier about number one being very proactive in following up what's happening in, in Brussels. Not just what's happening in Brussels should, of course, demarcate the kind of agendas that uh, African heads of states uh, need to cover. However, if they were to um, be able to follow what's happening in Brussels, the way in which some dynamics such as geopolitical competition uh, or the one in Ukraine are changing the EU's orientation on development cooperation or the EU's orientation on multilateralism, I think African states would then be able to have... Um, a useful discussion amongst themselves on what this then means for them, then uh, this means for uh, the partnership with uh, the European Union. And uh, the energy crisis that is happening uh, mostly in in Europe, for example, I think should invite African heads of states and their energy ministers to look into what is possible from their side and how could they, um, are there some opportunities that they could exploit and can they do that without, uh, of course, also... um, overlooking the needs of uh, their own national citizens, they have uh, primary obligations. Uh, questions around investment for infrastructure. I mean, with the Global Gateway Initiative, even if uh, the EU proposed it perhaps to counter China's influence in the continent, the question that African heads of state should be asking is, is there still an opportunity? In what ways could they um, make the best use of these resources, these changes that the EU um, is making to work for them? And uh, most importantly, I think, um, and this relates to my point around the EPF and finances therein. Um, I think that both partners, but particularly African um, states, need to think about how to use the partnership uh, for as a channel for um, benefits or to, to meet their interests beyond finances. Uh, for example, on peace and security, it's highly appreciated that the EU has been an outstanding funder of African peace support operations. But could African could, could the partnership serve other purposes such as Um, ensuring representation of uh, the A3 or African countries in the uh, UN Security Council, for example. Could this be leveraged um, to sort of um, integrate Africa's recommendations on how the UN Security Council should be reformed or how the UN should be reformed? So I think the question needs to go beyond finances and how much money is going from Europe to Africa on this topic and on on that topic. And it needs to go beyond that to entertain also how to use the partnership, how to leverage uh, political changes that are happening in both continents um, to um, uh, reform and and to ensure African interests are also reflected in global institutions and that African also equally reflected in the EU-Africa partnership, which Long has been accused of, you know, um, being primarily EU-driven. So I think the question has to go into balance and and so my conclusion would be that there is uh, more homework for African uh, heads of states. So I think a lot of the other questions, Mariella, you are asking. Um Um, will be questions that we will touch on in our upcoming paper. So for all of the uh, listeners and our regular readers as well, uh, stay tuned. I think uh, you will find some insights um, on our thoughts on where the partnership is going. Some of the big uh, shifts that we think the partnership has undergone uh, since last year, but then also beyond. Um, I'll give back the mic to you, uh, Katarina. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Lidad. We do have um a, a request here. Let me see if we can um ask Mr. Bethel to um speak.
4: Hello everyone. Um I'm happy to be here to listen to these um conversations. Um so yes, um Lided, I, I kind of would want to pick up from your conversation as regards to um how the partnership or the, the partnership is going. Uh, you mentioned quite a few a number of um um, aspects or dimensions that the partnership is going, but the area I really want to focus on is I would, I'm more interested in how um, how the partnership that is being set today, how the effort that is being set today will look like in twenty years, in thirty years, in fifty years. So because um, because I think number one, I've, I'm quite happy with the whole conversation around the the framework that has isn't designed and the language change and the understanding of how it is about working together and cooperating together uh, rather than the other how it used to be before but my interest is more how would it be in 20 years so what efforts or what kind of activities should we be doing now to encourage its sustainability or the aim being achieved in 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 20 years or 30 this time aside everything that is going on right now so in this aspect the conversation is how african young people who are potential leaders of tomorrow how are they conversing how are they engaging today well, what kind of relationships are they having how are they um putting together this kind of how are they cooperating in terms of maybe you in terms of the education in terms of businesses in terms of innovation in terms of because I, I think these are the things that build this foundation and introduce a new culture and makes it more reasonable moving forward so um Like this is an aspect that I just wanted to bring to light. I'm sure maybe if you have some new, if you have some information, you have more information, you can throw more light because I think that is a way way to sustain this. That is a way to really, really um, bring about this um, generational change and this whole change in how we view each other and cooperate together. Thanks.
1: I I can maybe uh, come in. Um, I I think that's an excellent question, Bethel. Thank you so much Uh, because this is a question that, Uh, forces us to um, envision or to dream into the future, right? Uh, So beyond talking about the the current circumstances. Um, One thing that comes to mind, at least this is, you know, my vision of the partnership going forward is in 20 years, the uh, partner's, Will have been hopefully able to bridge some of the power asymmetries that are, you know, that underpin um, the partnership. And some of these, uh, I mean, it's not that I think in in 20 years, at least economically speaking, that the continents would be on equal footing. However, there are things like, uh, African heads of states and a newer generation of African leaders being bolder, as Philomena was saying. Um, This is also, you know, a trend that has already started being um, driven and being also uh, sort of aware of what's going on in the world and then being ready to leverage that to their advantage. I think um, such developments would, would perhaps allow the partnership to to reduce the asymmetry in the partnership. Secondly, um, growing levels of education in the African continent, growing levels of connectivity and access to energy, perhaps also, of course, um, industrialization would also be able to bridge some of the um, educational gaps, some of the economic gaps, um, and... By elevating and also at the same time elevating Africa's role and position um, in the world, I think would be able to um, reduce some of the asymmetries. I think with growing connectivity, uh, people, just general people, as Mariella was saying, civil society organizations, average citizens, being able to know each other's context better um, and being able to relate to each other as human beings, uh, not as one, you know, like the well-off and the other the uh, worse off, but just as as human beings being able to read each other's books, uh, being able to exchange on each other's intellectual contributions, I think that would also help... um, create some some common ground and some understanding both at the level of, you know, at the uh, level of political elites and, you know, the negotiators, but also at the level of uh, populations, uh, which is increasingly important because, of course, the uh, political leaders have to respond to their uh, constituencies. So some of these changes, I think, or give me hope that... Um, will allow the people from both sides to relate to each other, the people from both sides to sort of envision a future together, um, and political actors to do their jobs better as well. Um, and in doing so, bridge some of the asymmetries um, that this partnership has long um, struggled uh, with. So that that would be my thought on where we should be going um, in twenty years. Thank you, Lidet. We do have another uh, request here
0: to speak from Joanna, so I'm just going to let her come in, and please uh, do let us know if you have then a comment or a uh, or a question for our speakers, Joanna. Super.
5: Uh, yes, hi everyone. I'm Johanna. I work as policy and advocacy advisor at Plan International's EU office, and among other things, I follow uh, the EU-Africa partnership. And especially, given the focus of Plan International, that some of you may know, um, looking at indeed youth. So that's why I just wanted to jump in on uh, Bethel's comment. I think. That's also an area of the partnership where we have seen a lot of positive developments in the past two years, because young people from Europe and Africa have pushed themselves to have an active role in shaping this partnership. They see the value of it, especially in the years going forward and they see the the value and the importance of our uh, continents, um, connecting in terms of opportunities as well. So I would also suggest you to, um, actually check and this also to frame it in the bigger picture of the global gateway has been framed as the so-called people to people aspect of the global gateway which is about connections myself i'm still a bit skeptical and trying to understand what it means in practice but bethel i would really recommend you to check um Under the whole Global Gateway package, a few initiatives have been launched, such as the uh, Young African Leaders Program, and a few others. Um, Now I don't remember all of the the names, but to really connect young Africans and young Europeans. So this is something that I look at very positively. However, I think one challenge will rather be now connecting all of these thoughts because there are so many things happening on so many different levels um, and it's very hard to keep track of what's happening. It's very hard to keep track of who's really benefiting from these initiatives. And uh, yeah, so this is just something I wanted to share. And maybe one final comment from my side is um, I am wondering, I am worried that Africa is um, I mean, we know it is a priority for the EU and it it might continue to be so. But at the same time, um, for some of the member states, um, I'm talking now about Sweden, for instance, that has this, the presidency right now. Uh, they uh, just announced their foreign policy declaration yesterday and Africa is not mentioned. Um, then we have the Spanish presidency coming up with probably a lot of focus going on in Latin America. And while I'm not saying this is a problem, I'm just a bit worried that, um, I mean, all of the momentum that was built around the summit is now getting slowly lost also in terms of interest. I'm struggling myself with uh, keeping partners and uh, colleagues uh, in Africa as well, in, like um, active around this and informed with information from Brussels. Um, so yeah, maybe this is one concern that I, I see uh, myself. Um, but
0: yeah, thank you so much for the very interesting conversation. It's interesting to listen. Thank you, Johanna. Um, I don't know if any of our speakers would like to uh, quickly come in on this.
2: Maybe just for jo- Johanna, Johanna mm-hmm. just for your information, if you're looking at um, Spain's position, uh, yesterday during the opening uh, session of the Executive Council, uh, Minister José Manuel Al- Albares was present and he, he did say that um, Spain during the presidency would like to you know, work with the African Union and the FCFD. There's a recording on their website, so maybe for your own, you can find it there.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Filomena, Thank you, Lidette, Mariella, Thank you to everyone for for joining us uh, today for this uh, exchange also. Um, thank you for sharing your perspectives on this partnership one year after the uh, EUAU Summit. To everyone listening, you will be able to sort of re-listen to this uh, conversation on our website later on. And please also keep an eye on our... Um, opinion pieces and analysis that we were going that we are going to be producing in the uh, coming months to continue looking at some of the points that we discussed uh today so thank you again to all of our speakers and to all of you uh for joining us today thanks katarina thanks everyone thanks, thank you everyone